I encourage my staff to use ChatGPT, and but I, I say the results are are you're still judged by the results. Yeah. It's your result. Like you can't say, "Oh, ChatGPT misled me." No, 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 no. Right? You write a good email, and if it's not a good email, that's because yeah. ChatGPT led you down a garden path. I think that's that's a points out a really significant difference between the way this plays out in a higher ed context and the way it plays out in a like workplace context. Yeah. Like for learning, I think it's it's process, right? Like we want our we want to be able to know that our learners are like cognitively grappling with the stuff that we need them right. to the scaffolding to actually like learn it. And so we need then to think about assessments that that are designed to show us that as opposed to just like does it look like a research essay at the end? Because you can't tell from that what anymore. You are listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My guest today is Dr. Robin Sutherland-Harris. Robin is an educational developer in the Teaching Commons at York University. Robin has a PhD in medieval studies, and you can bet I'm going to ask a question about that, about the Middle Ages before this interview is over, so stay tuned. Robin is currently teaching a course called Taking It Online, the ChatGPT edition, offered to York University instructors who want to examine effective teaching online in the age of AI, artificial intelligence. Today, Robin and I are discussing the impact of AI tools on higher education and what can be done to prepare students for a world where AI plays an ever larger role. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Um, so what brought you to the role of educational developer? Um, I guess that was it was just a love of teaching and an interest in teaching originally. Um, when I started grad school, I hadn't really ever taught before. Um, and I wasn't sure. I actually kind of thought I might hate it. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure how I feel. I had suspicions about the sort of the power dynamics inherent in higher education and the way that is reinforced in classrooms. And um, I just, you know, could imagine myself being very uncomfortable with that. Uh, and then the first time I ever taught, I was thrown in, you know, kind of sink or swim, not as a TA, but actually as a, a course instructor or a course director, as they're called at York. Um, which was just sort of circumstance and how it how it unfolded. Um, and I was terrible <laughs> at it, but I loved it, right? Like I could tell I pitied my poor students who really had to bear with my learning curve. Um, but uh, I really loved uh, I loved the teaching and I just started getting involved with the teaching and learning center um, at the University of Toronto where I was at the time and and I ended up working with them for a long time and then, um, I had, after I finished my PhD, I had a small uh, kind of part-time contract doing educational development work um, kind of in-house for a department. Um, and then I came to York uh, after a few years of that. And now I'm full-time and have been here since 2019. Excellent. And uh, so that's the thing that the teaching is uh, an art and a science and a puzzle. Um, what does an educational developer do? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'm like, I feel like we do everything. <laughs> um, the way I describe it to sort of people out in the world when, when they ask me what, like, what is that? Um, is I basically, I help 
faculty or other educators in the university system teach better. And that can look a lot like a lot of different things. It can mean, you know, individualized one-on-one consultations about, you know, this assessment doesn't seem to be working or like I'm having some like troubles engaging my students uh, in an online space or in this particular conversation, or they don't seem to be understanding this concept. Um, or it can be, you know, we do, I, I, I do a lot of courses and, and workshops for you know, groups of faculty who come together. And I really love those because I think one of the things that's most transformative for educators in higher education is the opportunity to talk with other people who are passionate about teaching. And, and there's not always another person in your home department that you can easily connect with in those ways. So bringing people together to talk to peers and colleagues, um, I think is really valuable. So I do a lot of courses and, and things, networking, kind of community of practice things around that. Um, we also do uh, support for departments who are going through things like cyclical program review or they're creating a new um, degree stream, uh, things like that. Um, new course proposals um, were involved in some of the, at York, there's the AIF funding. So centrally administered funding. We don't administer the funding, but um, we support, uh, you know, projects who receive some of this funding, which is dedicated for academic innovation. And a lot of it's around teaching and learning. And if they want to bring on somebody in a kind of consultative role to support the particular project. Um, yeah, there's a very wide range of things that we do. There's a bit of scope for um, scholarship. So we do some research, sometimes with partners inside the university. Some, I have a couple of writing projects going on with folks at other institutions. So it's very wide ranging, which I love. Right. I can see that. It's very entrepreneurial too. <laughs> and um, one of the manifestations of that uh, has been the course that you're teaching now. I think it's underway now, yes. which is taking it online, the chat GPT edition. What goals did you begin with when you, when you started developing that course? This course originally was not about generative AI when it was taking it online, not the chat GPT edition, the previous edition. <laughs> um, it came out of, uh, something that was kind of already in the works when the pandemic hit, which was the idea of developing a course for faculty that would let them kind of provide a bit of structure uh, and a bit of momentum and some supports for the work that they have to do already around, you know, thinking through in a deeply pedagogical way, changes that they want to make um, to a course. In particular, this one was about you know, when you make the transfer from you have a face to face course, and then you need to bring it online. And that was already in the works um, in development when the pandemic hit. And then it was the perfect fit <laughs> for that scenario. So we've had a, like quite a large number of faculty um, kind of move through that course, uh, which is very kind of workshoppy. So each week, you have a, a sort of three or four challenges that you can select from you pick one, um, and then you come up with a little action plan of like, how are you going to respond to that challenge in your course? And the challenge might be academic integrity or the challenge might be, um, you know, engaging learners in discussion forums. And there's some resources, a few prompts, and you just kind of think it through. And then you have conversations with other faculty um, and other educators who are thinking about those same things. So when generative AI started emerging onto the landscape, um, I thought that that was also probably a very useful, broad kind of structure 
to help folks grapple with that. You know, people who want to make some changes in response to this new technology that's out there. They're maybe already seeing hints and signs that their students are using it, um, but they don't really know how to think through approaching it or what their priorities should be or what the sort of opportunities might be, but what the challenges really are, you know, all of these things. Um, so it's, a, again, a way of, you know, kind of giving folks some structure and a little bit of external <laughs> motivation to, you know, pick just pick one thing, come up with a few ideas, plan to implement them and talk and talk to other people about what you're thinking about. They can give you feedback. I, I'm uh, and my colleague Yellen Sue, who I'm co-facilitating it with, are in the forums and, and, you know, talking with people in synchronous sessions to see, you know, give feedback and share thoughts as well. And, and then you can also see what everybody else is doing, whether it's in your discipline or in, in different contexts, which I think is a huge part of the value for people is just like, how are other people thinking through this stuff? Yeah. Um, you mentioned academic integrity, and I definitely want to look at that because that's one of the big fascinations that comes from chat GPT. But uh, I want to revisit the how you prepared for this course. Um, as you were ex examining what chat GPT's impact would be, what were the surprises to you? Like, I'm sure you went in with one vision. And it, as you prepare, you always sort of realize there's things you you that you uncover. What What surprised you in that process? Um, I think the degree to which this seems to be maybe polarizing, at least in the sort of the media sphere, like what is out there on the internet right now, polarizing people's responses to the technology. Some people are very apprehensive and afraid and nervous about its implications. Some of that is around academic integrity. Some of it is just around, you know, here come our robot overlords kind of apprehensions. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are also like a significant number of people who are just very interested in like what this means for uh, productivity, um, for, you know, changes to the sort of the working, the business working landscape um, and some of the exciting potential implications for you know what this might look like in higher education so there's definitely like there are sort of two kind of camps and I think really probably most people are a little bit in both fields but that those are just kind of two emerging narratives um and I I'm glad that there is this sort of like excited this is a wonderful opportunity kind of narrative emerging um as well as the more apprehensive one i think it's, it's good to have those two um to balance off against each other and then i, I guess think, oh sorry go ahead oh i was just going to react to the idea that you're saying we all kind of inhabit some of that polarity but you'd never see that online no. everybody's either one or the other emphatically yeah yeah I'm, the internet <laughs> yes absolutely yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, and i cut you off a little bit there well, you were going to add something or um yeah, there was another, back to your original question about what surprised me. Yeah, there was something else that now I'm trying to retrieve. What was that? Um, oh, maybe it will come back. To It'll me. come back. No worries. Um, you also mentioned that that you saw this discussion or this this ex exploration of chat, GP, chat, chat GPT's impact in the classroom 
uh, as dovetailing very well with a course that was intended for online instructors or instructors who are online. Um, what are the differences that you see between how chat GPT is impacting classes that are online or hybrid or in-person, or is it just a matter of degree? I think it's just a matter of degree. Um, and I feel, yeah, in, in a way, maybe the, the in-person courses have a bit of a, an easy out right now in that around the concerns around assessment and academic integrity, they have actually a physical classroom space where they can bring students in to, to you know, be in a room where they also are present and, you know, they can do that sort of in-person assessment um, more easily than a course that is designated as an online course. Uh, yeah, do it in front of me, then that way I know yeah. you're not a robot. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, there are concerns around that too, in terms of like, we can't just roll back the clock and insist on, you know, in order for an assessment to be uh, reliable and, you know, preserve academic integrity, we can't just, you know, default to everything needs to be in person. Some people are saying things like, you know, handwritten and so on. But, you know, that's like, <laughs> there, are, there are good reasons that we've gone with computers. And there are, there are good reasons that some of the online assessment tools are have been very advantageous. But I think one of the things that is kind of interesting to play with in the, the sort of generative AI landscape is when you're thinking about the types of things that something like ChatGPT does well, are those then the types of things you want to assess for in an in-person context if you have that ability? And then the things that it maybe doesn't do as well, you can move to an asynchronous or an online or an assignment, you know, go off and work on this on your own where students are going to do that, which is interesting because the things that chat GPT, for example, does well are often the kind of lower level skills in the Bloom's taxonomy, if you want to use that one. Um, so the remembering, the kind of basic understanding, those are the things right now, at least. Um, I mean, it's evolving so quickly, but so that would then mean, you know, maybe you're doing things like little like knowledge check quizzes with your students um, at the beginning of your courses, which is interesting in light of what has happened during the pandemic, because I think the pandemic has encouraged people to put little knowledge check quizzes into the online space, right? And right. now we're like, oh, actually, maybe maybe that's a kind of more fragile or, or, or kind of frangible structure than we originally thought it was. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are there any policies that you, um, that, that faculty members can consider in the classroom or, or online, whether it's online or in person, but regarding AI that, that the faculty member can impose as, a, as an understanding of what students can do? Um, I think there's a whole range. So there's a lot of policy gray area right now, especially at institutions like York, where there hasn't been a sort of overarching statement of this is how the university expects generative AI to be used. Um, a lot of institutions are still, you know, leaving it up to what an individual instructor wants to do in their course. So yeah, there is a lot of room for like distinct policy between different instructors. So one of the things that's like, whatever your policy, it has to be absolutely crystal clear to your, to your students, whether you're like, yes, absolutely come you know, use the technology. We're going to be doing classroom examples with them. I'm going to be asking you to use it on your assignments. Like we're really going to integrate it or your approach is, you know, I have deep pedagogical and ethical 
reservations about this technology. I don't want you to be using it for these reasons. Both of which I think are completely valid. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be laid out really clearly because students moving from one course to another, or even within a single institution, are going to be hit by a different range of policies and are going to, you know, make assumptions about what is and is not acceptable use of the technology in light of that. So that would be my number one thing is like, whatever the policy, like just really make it clear, make it clear in a bunch of different contexts, put it on your syllabus, put it in your LMS site, put it like talk about it with your students. Um, but was there, was there something in your question that I'm not getting at? No, that's, that's perfect. And I, I think that, um, I love the idea that, that it should be very explicit. One of the things that York did, which I actually kind of admire is, and maybe the policy has changed since I read it, but the policy was we still, we still have academic integrity rules. Unless your faculty member explicitly says you're allowed to use AI tools, you can't. And so there's a blanket thing, but what I like about it is it leaves a lot of autonomy in the hands of the instructor. And so when you say that, you know, the, the regrettable thing is it means that the student could be whipsawed by multiple different approaches. So having that emphasis at the beginning to say thou shalt not, or this is what you're allowed, I think is really healthy. Yeah. One um, of the things, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, please. I was, this might be a bit rambly. I was just going to say one of the things that I've used in this, this course that's running right now um, is a framework that was kind of thrown out there by uh, Maloney, Edward, Edward J. Maloney, I think is the first name, um, in an Inside Higher Ed article, which is about the four stages of AI. Um, and basically he's suggesting that this these are kind of the four, the four stages or approaches that um, institutions and individuals in higher ed kind of are coming coming to a reckoning with AI. With The first one is a, is regulate, then adapt, then integrate, then reimagine is the fourth right. one. Mm -hmm. And I think what I like about that framework is that none of those can be cast out altogether, right? Like you, even if you don't plan on doing a lot of embracing of the technology, you don't necessarily think you're going to integrate it deeply into how you're teaching your students. Maybe it's not relevant. Maybe you're doing very, very hands-on, you know, experiential stuff or like lab-based learning where it just doesn't kind of crop up as much. The fact is that it's in the landscape. So you still have to think about the regulation, like what kind of policies are you going to have in place? What kind of guidelines, what sort of frameworks, how are you going to talk to your students about it? Um, and then also the adaptation, like how are you going to adapt what you're doing along the lines of what we were talking about earlier? Like, are there maybe things that you used to do online that you're going to just kind of move into a face-to-face -face space or vice versa, um, just to in sort of recognition of the fact that the tech is out there. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what the limitations and flaws are of chat GPT. Um, what are you seeing? What are you cautioning students about or, or through instructors about the limitations of chat GPT? Um, well, uh, I think because it is designed to feel so much like interacting with it, like a human, with another human through it through a chat feature that that there is a risk of feeling like even when you kind of know there's no intelligence you know kind of like 
complex intelligence the way that we think of it really living there um it still can kind of feel like there is so um i think you've had this conversation on some of your other podcasts but the way it works is that it's um, the sort of famous now famous article about stochastic parrot right like it's a <laughs> it it's a way of random randomly but probabilistically essentially generating likely text so it sounds very reasonable and plausible and likely and it's been coached and trained exhaustively on like very very large data sets to come up with you know what is kind of the most likely human sounding um response to your question in a particular way and that can really very very much feel like there is an intelligence living in there that understands more than it actually can it can really do amazing things but it's not um it doesn't it doesn't know things in a deep way, I think, the way that it can sometimes feel like it does. So that would be my number one um, caution is, and and my number one kind of reason why faculty should take it seriously and talk about it with students is because students are using it, but they're under a misapprehension of that it, that it has a more like truly authoritative kind of grounding in, in knowledge and intelligence than it does. Um, that can lead students very astray. And I think it, you know, it's important for them to know the limitations of it um, in, in just what its basic capacities are right now. So what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Do you have any advice for faculty members who are tempted to use chat GPT in the preparation of course material? <laughs> I think, yeah. So this also maybe is, relates to how I think it's important to talk to students uh, about this technology, but also important for faculty to think about it is like, what are, the, what are the ethics around this? What are the disciplinary ethics? What are the sort of the broader ethics when I, I know there are definitely faculty members out there who are very resistant to using technology that has, it's, it's a bit of a black box. We don't really know what is happening with the data. There are intellectual property issues, potentially. We don't necessarily know where it's headed or what the ramifications of our participation in use of this technology are going to be a year or two down the road. Um, there's also the concerns around how the data that ChatGPT, for example, was trained on, was cleaned, like tidied up and made palatable for our use so that it does feel like a pleasant <laughs> encounter. So, you know, the, the which involved very poorly paid, uh, I believe it was Kenyan uh, laborers who had to look at the sort of horrific things that it was generating based on its large data set um, of information and kind of prune them out. And that you know, can be very tra traumatic and, and undervalued work on a global scale. So. There are those kind of ethical considerations, and I think that you know those are important to consider. And then I think also the dis the disciplinary conversations, right? Like what what does it mean to use Chat GPT to write a history paper, like to you know help you you know polish your writing for the disciplinary norm? Maybe that's one thing um, to help you analyze evidence from other secondary sources and create a summary of that it's a little dodgier right and then like mm -hmm. getting into like interpretation of like historical primary evidentiary material like you know it, it gets 
sort of dicier and dicier um, depending on where you go. So I think that those are important considerations for faculty to think through. And I think one thing that I know faculty um, are using sort of from things that I've read online and from conversations I've been having with folks is uh, chat GPT to assist for grading um, purposes. And that's one where I feel deeply conflicted because on the one hand, when I'm grading student papers, I often have like a bank of comments that I've just like written out and copy and I copy paste them in because a lot of the same issues occur over and over again. So using chat GPT to do something like analogous to that, but maybe slightly slightly, you know, it does a little bit more of the heavy lifting of like drafting what the comments might be. Maybe that's okay. But I also feel very ambivalent about grading work being undertaken by anyone except the, the actual professor and the grader. And then that also opens up a whole realm of conversations that faculty need to be having with TAs too, right? Right. Yeah, completely. Um, so let's focus a little bit more on academic integrity. Certainly in in my, I've been hearing from little birdies that students are getting into trouble uh, over, over academic integrity issues surrounding chat GPT and tools like that. What are you hearing and what are, what are the kinds of reactions that we can take? Yeah. So a lot of things that have been hitting the media, at least are the false positives uh, around yes. the, the academic integrity detection tools. And I think that is worth taking really seriously, right? The, the tools that are out there right now are not yet proven to be sufficiently reliable to upend a student's life the way that an academic integrity accusation can do. Um, so including the, the sort of, yeah, the ones that are sort of built into existing tools that are sort of being rolled out is like, oh, you already have this tool. Well, we're, we've just added this other little feature, which now will tell you if it's an AI generated thing or not. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of apprehension around the various um, detectors and their efficacy. Um, I think what I've been seeing is a lot of faculty get a sense of what they first see is that it just is weird, <laughs> that there's something that just reads kind of weirdly about what the student has written in a way that isn't necessarily about like the standard of the writing, but is more about like, you know, it's funny that they would talk about this, but they wouldn't also like make any reference to this other sort of idea that's been woven through the course for the whole semester or this like, you know, particular uh, paper that we've been talking about for the last two weeks in this course, or, you know, so that, so it's kind of missing some of the contextual pieces, the way that normally student work exists in a conversation with the whole scope of the, the semester long course. Um, so it, things kind of read a bit funny, um, I think often. And then what, one thing that I've been sort of suggesting to faculty and that I have found useful is to, if, if you are okay with it from an intellectual property angle, running your own assessment prompts, like your your essay prompt or your, you know, whatever it is, your thing that you're asking your students to put that into chat GPT, see what it spits out and get, like, just use that to get a sense for the types of things that um, it is generating. And it kind of gives you a sense of its voice. And I know that you can coach it on tone and ask it to rewrite things in different ways. So it's not, certainly not a fail safe, but, um, it does give you a, at least a starting point of like, 
what is it most likely to spit out? And because students so often engage in sort of breaches of academic integrity because they they're in a sort of panicky last minute situation where they feel backed against the wall, it's not that improbable that most of the chat GPTs that you would see would be sort of like, help me just like generate this thing. And then they just take it and they don't necessarily do a ton of reworking of it um, because they, they're, you know, it's 1145 and they have to submit it by midnight or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So just copy and paste. Yeah. Um, so there's a few themes in there. Um, and I want to pick up on, you said that sometimes the output is funny or not really it's tangential to what we're talking about or missing a piece. I want to, I want to get into that later because, um, you know, we could grade students on that gap and not even know if they're using chat GPT or not. So I want to, I want to come to that, but I also want to pick up on the detection tools, this idea of using an AI to catch an AI type of thing. Um, so chat GPT and the like, it's it's a it's a mimic, right? And they can do antagonistic things where you can have it keep trying to fool the other AI until the AI is like, I guess that's a human. I don't know. I mean, basically it's the it's the Turing test, right? You know, eventually the, the robot will fail, will will not only pass it, but be fooled by it. Yeah. Um so if we can't, so one 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 thing is you sort of throw up your hands and say, okay, well, if I can't detect the use of AI, what do we teach instead? What do we expect of students instead? Um, can we just accept it and demand more from our students? Uh, <laughs> maybe. Um, and, what, and what would that look like, right? That's yeah. the tricky part because yeah. um, I think you were sort of talking, you, I had an example, you know, that, that we teach, we used to really focus on arithmetic in grade school. And now I don't think we do it as much anymore because everybody has a calculator. Yeah. Everybody has a phone with a calculator in it. And so we've moved up a, a layer of abstraction to word problems. And ChatGPT is struggling with word problems, but eventually it will know how long it takes that train from Detroit to get to Cincinnati, right? And so you have to keep going up a layer of abstraction. So it becomes very difficult to formulate that assignment. Yeah. And very difficult, I would think, to assess that assignment. I mean, now, now you're just not saying that looks like an essay, it gets a C. Now you have to say, well, it can't be that. It has to be, that's an F. It has to be much more than that. It's very cognitively demanding for the faculty member or the TA. Yeah. What are we going to do? I think one of the one of the concepts that's been helping me think through this puzzle is the idea of cognitive offloading and thinking about when and where we want to do that and being very deliberate and careful about that. So the, the idea of, it's basically exactly what you said with the calculator, cognitive offloading is, you know, when humans use their bodies or technology to kind of take some of that like cognitive processing load away to free up cognitive resources, to pay attention to other things and to look at other things. So, you know, in, if it's your body, you might just be counting with your fingers, for example, like if you're, or you might use a calculator for the technology example. Um, uh, and I think chat GPT and other generative AI are like very good at assisting with cognitive offloading in certain ways, right? Like, do I need to think about like the grammatical structure of a sentence? Maybe not, right? Like, but the the 
the challenge of that is that sometimes, yes, sometimes you do need to think about the grammatical structure of the sentence because it deeply impacts the meaning and the way that you understand language. And that's really important to like the actual disciplinary context and, for example, the course learning outcome. So I think that's where it it is kind of just, it is going to be work for faculty members to think through, like, what is it that in my course, in this particular course, you know, where is it going to be acceptable for learners to have a have a break from some of the stuff that I'm asking them to do, but I, I'm not, like, if they don't actually, it's not really part of what I'm really aiming for with the learning outcomes. Right. So like, if I'm teaching physics, do I have to teach spelling? Yeah. Or exactly. can I accept the fact that everybody has a spell check? And so we've taken yeah. that off the table. Yeah. Yeah. Or like another example might be if you had um, students who were giving group presentations, uh, are are you evaluating their use of like of PowerPoint slides and their ability to design a nice looking PowerPoint slide? Um, if you are, because this is maybe a graphic design course, mm -hmm. then that's like part of the cognitive offloading that you do not want to free up. And you want to make that really clear to your students and talk about it and then put some kind of like maybe barriers or, or processes in the way that you're assessing um, to protect that. But for a lot of courses, actually, it doesn't really matter what the slides look like. So you're not evaluating <laughs> or you shouldn't be assessing the that, that. And so maybe it's perfectly fine if a student uses a tool like Slido um, where you can just like have it generate, you know, slides for you and then they just use that as kind of their presentation framework but really what is important is the the content that they're communicating and their ability to to sort of defend their arguments and you know present their case and and so on in the presentation so yeah it's i think it is a complicated it is complicated and, <laughs> and as you were as you were using thing. that example of slido or, or there's all kinds of ai uh tools to put together your presentation if you did it by hand and made a hash of it, then you're you're sort of betraying a, a failure of literacy. It's the modern literacy, right? There yeah. are tools that can help you do that in a way that's not distracting or misleading or missing pieces yeah. because it's right there. Use the tool. It'd yeah. be like, like it used to be, I'm sure back in my day, the difference, you could change a letter grade just by correcting all your spelling mistakes. Well, now that day has passed, although if you do have spelling mistakes, that should drop you two letter grades because come on, right? <laughs> we have tools for that. Um, let me switch gears a little bit because we're still talking about academic output, really, is how we demonstrate we know something or contribute to what the world knows. You have extensive experience uh, with research methods and research data management. You have a PhD um, if you were researching a paper today, can you imagine AI playing a role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that I've been playing around with having AI do is just summarize my very messy notes <laughs> for things. <laughs> so, and it's, fascinating to me how quickly I mean it's a pretty simple task to give an AI but um I did it I did it with GPT 3.5 chat GPT 3.5 and it did not a great version that doesn't it. sound like me at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well it, it it summarized my notes but it kind of kept too much of the messiness like it still it was a bit too like 
it didn't really do the sort of like extraction and synthesis and that I was kind of hoping for, but GPT-4 did mm. do it. And I was like, this is great. This is because now, you know, you go into an archive and you take a bunch of semi-chaotic <laughs> notes about the documents that you're looking at, for example, or you, you know, create a spreadsheet or whatever, and it's like a little bit chaotic and you kind of ask the AI to, what what are you seeing here? And I also have been talking with colleagues about um, various plugins uh, and and sort of tools that are emerging specifically around data analysis um, as well, where you can you know give it your spreadsheet and just say like generate some graphs of things that look interesting to you, and it might come up with stuff that you haven't even considered. Obviously, you need to be able to go back into the data and make sure that it is being accurate and it may not be at this stage but i think it probably will be you know kind of reliably accurate in the very near future for that kind of thing so yes i absolutely think in terms of like synthesis of things that are going on in your own head in a chaotic way and then you need to bring them together in a way that is easier to articulate and present it's i think very useful for that and then also you know in terms of like large data sets that are maybe just a little bit you know challenging for you at a glance to kind of see like, ah, this is the, this is what's standing out here. Um, it can be helpful. Yeah. I can, uh, one of the challenges I remember from uh, university and I was not a terrific student when it came to this kind of thing, but there's like the summary and the executive summary and the introduction. And it just feels like you're just saying the same thing over and yeah. over again. It would be wonderful to be able to say, at least draft the executive summary for me so that I don't have to think this through again. Uh, do you do you see any merit to that as a possibility? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I also struggle with like, how do I take, as a researcher, you're so in the weeds with your, you know, your argument and your data and you're just like, it's really hard to sometimes pull back and say like, what is this? What on really pops, hand, yeah. Yeah, on the other hand, you, you that is a really important skill to have, right? So- True you don't you don't want to relinquish the ability to be able to to be able as a researcher to take a step back and like think broadly and articulate um in a simple way what it is that your data is saying so but yeah having having the sort of like generate a draft and then at least a draft how, yeah how do how do then i want to tweak this or do i think this is reliable and those are also like very interesting and valuable i think potential classroom uses um, of tools like chat GPT for educators to use, right? Like, you know, here's, you know, a text that we've been talking about. This is the summary of this text that uh, chat GPT has generated. Do we agree or not? Like, what is it missing? Where's the nuance? Where are the gaps that you think that looking at what the technology is generating and then identifying where are the gaps in what we know and what we would want it to say. And that can, I think really help learners get at like particular ways of disciplinary thinking mm -hmm. because chat GPT, at least right now is going to mostly erase those disciplinary nuances um, and figuring out ways to talk about, you know, this is the sort of generic version that the AI has produced. What do we need to do to this to make it a, like a really viable, meaningful, authentic piece of disciplinary writing um, that is in conversation with scholarship in this field. I think that can be a, could be a really, really valuable way of, of launching those conversations with students. 
Yeah, because otherwise it runs the risk of making your executive summary sound like a Reddit thread or something, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Depending on the tone it's accustomed to, you might have to swing it back and say, yeah. no, make it sound more academic, please. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned a couple of concrete examples, and I can't leave this conversation without exploring that because that's worth the price of admission. Um, you talked about uh, organizing your notes and also... Uh, sort of exploring data and asking for outputs like charts and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't done that with chat GPT. I've, I've, I've hit the limit in terms of how much of my own text I can drag in and say, summarize. So are you paying for chat GPT? Do you have a paid account or is there some other technique you're using? I have, yeah, I have the paid account for GPT four. Um, and that's where it really was much better at summarizing my own messy meeting notes. I was not happy with 3.54 was like a whole other story on that front. The, what I was saying about the data and the generating charts, my understanding, this was a conversation that I had with a colleague recently. I haven't done that myself. And my understanding is that I'm not even sure if it's available in Canada yet, or if the tools are kind of like they rolled out in the States, but they're coming here soon. Um, yeah. Okay, I haven't seen so that particular thing. In for my international viewers, you might be able to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, not to pick on you, but so let, let, let's um, let's say that uh, I have an engineering degree from 1993, mm -hmm. and I remember a lot of it was about drafting and that sort of thing. You know, a lot of, a lot of these skills are no longer necessary, um, and certainly the idea of taking a bolt, drawing it from one side, and drawing it from the other side, and having that be accurate—you just draw it from one side, and then you know you can have the CAD machine rotate mm -hmm. it for you. Um, so you have an advanced degree. You have three degrees. You have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD. Is that all? Only three? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well done. The three is good. <laughs> but that's like that represents a ton of effort, several years, lots of expense, lots of foregone opportunities. And the end result is a couple of things, at least a couple of things. One is uh, an education that you learned a lot, but the other is a certification. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, and this is why we keep talking about academic integrity, is, is the certification matters. It's part of what how we demonstrate as educators that we're doing something worthwhile, and it's how the student demonstrates that they're doing something worthwhile. The temptation is to sort of say, well, you know, it's not really, it's never really been about assessment. It's about giving people the opportunity to learn or or you know, learn about themselves or whatever. Um, and it gets into the results or the process question. Um, I know you, you sort of alluded to this at the beginning, that there was some soul searching about what the whole point of this is and, and what we're doing with students. What, what tangents did that take? Um, for me, I think, okay, <laughs> that's a big question. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, and I think I'm spinning my wheels in my head a little bit too much. Um, can you ask me that question? Like, just again, I'm like, I think I've gone down a rabbit hole. Sure. In my yeah. Okay. So um, if we collectively decide that there's an awful lot of academic output that we assess today that could be done by a machine, just like we accept that arithmetic can be done by a calculator. What does certification look like? Does it come back to the idea that we would expect more from a student? Mm -hmm. 
or does it come back come back to the idea that really it's the experience and the and and we want the students to have an environment where they can learn but we can't necessarily prove that they've learned that we accept that as an alternative yeah my hope okay this is i think why i fell down into the rabbit hole but my my hope is really that what cumulatively this whole generative ai in higher education landscape will will evolve into is something where we move away from for lack of a better word like a sort of neoliberal model of higher education where uh you know it's sort of like the the sort of diploma mill idea of you know like people are coming purely for the credential and we have these huge huge course sizes like that's a really really challenging environment to try and manage and and respond to generative ai if you have a course that's you know a thousand or two thousand students um how how do you do that whereas for faculty who have courses that are 30 students or fewer 50 students or fewer it's a much more manageable landscape um in terms of you know you can actually like build those human connections and learn your learn who your students are and connect with them and help figure out ways of engaging them and drawing them into the course content that are resonant for them that will you know whether or not it's like a course that they're taking because it's like a core part of their degree program or it's a breadth requirement there's going to be something in the course that they're more excited about and that they will connect to um but all of these these ways of i think responding to chat gpt and other generative ai that emphasize you know the the human connections which i think is what you're getting at with like the 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 deeper learning um and also i think is the way of avoiding this kind of trap of it's just all about the credential and and so on they take more time and more resources more labor and and a kind of a different institutional structure and but i think the alternative is a landscape in which you have bots teaching bots effectively right like yep. you have faculty members who have no time who have huge courses who are necessarily reliant on you know chat gpt to help them do their grading or help them like draft their course outlines or figure out their lesson plan or put together their slideshow, you know, like all of the things um, at, in order just to manage the workload of the, the teaching landscape that they're in. And you have students who are disengaged to such a degree that they don't see any value in bringing their own voice and reflexivity into the learning process. So they're, they're then completely happy to rely on something like ChatGPT to smooth their way through that. So I don't, yeah. I, I don't like the idea of saying just like we expect more now because I think it still can disadvantage like it can disadvantage certain groups of students and and you know some of the things that some of those lower level things um that aren't more are still sometimes the valuable parts, right? Like sometimes that initial creative brainstorming process sometimes yeah you can do that in collaboration with a, a generative ai sometimes doing that whole process with the blank sheet of paper in front of you from scratch is really cognitively hard but also cognitively valuable and you want to protect that so the asking like just kind of getting okay with well now we're just like expecting everything to start at like 
you know, the sort of 60% is the baseline expectation has the risk, I think, of undermining the value of those more preliminary stages. Like we still all have to learn to add, even though we walk around with calculators. Sure. Or it's still amazing to see so many play guitar, even though we have a million MP3s in the world. Yeah. 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 Um, so another thread I wanted to pull on and, and then we'll move on to my favorite question. Um, another thread to pull on is uh, treating AI and chat GPT and all these things as assistive technology. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I have a cognitive impairment or a physical impairment, or if, if the language of my university is my second language, it would be so nice to be able to sort of like, just, I, you know, if you break your arm, you can't type very well. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to talk to it? And then obviously there's going to be spelling errors and, and grammatical errors. But if you could say, clean that up for me, just like we talked about with our own messy notes. Do you see any scope for that? And do you think that maybe it's, well, if you have those impairments, then we have, to, you know, it's almost like an IEP, an individualized education plan where some students are allowed to use these tools and others aren't. Where do you see that going as assistive technology? Um, I think there is a, a great deal of potential for it as assistive technology for, you know, learners who have various learning challenges, things like um, like various processing challenges or like ADHD, um, other kinds of, I've encountered a bunch of them online. There's some some good articles out there about, you know, some of the, the potential um, for generative AI for, for those learners. So yeah, I think absolutely um, there is a, a potential, I think, for accommodations offices to start seeing it as sort of necessary assistive technology and, and, and then for it to evolve into that kind of landscape where some students get to use it and other students don't. I would argue for the basic kind of groundwork of universal design for learning where just make it something that everyone can use, right? Like if you're, if one of your students needs captions, just it can be helpful for all of your students to have captions on a, on a video, um, regardless of whether or not it's because they, you know, have some kind of uh, disability or if it's because they're like looking at the video while they're on the bus and they don't have the sound on, you know, like that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Oh so, yeah. We live yeah, in like, a magical age because captioning is so awesome. Like it, it, it does have its flaws. It'll yes. have errors, but if you're, if you're going through a two hour video and you're like, when did they mention that? You can actually search on the word. Yeah. It's so much better. I, I really, you're, you're right. That's a perfect yeah. example of something that, you know, if you can't hear, that's great. But even if you can, there's so many advantages to having that that assist. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to see it as a kind of like two tiered system. That said, I know that even with the, the fact that there's, you know, the free GPT 3.5 and then there's the paid GPT 4, which in my experience is already like significantly better and that's going to continue to evolve. So things are the technology itself is already kind of starting to disappear behind paywalls. Um, of various kinds, which introduces a different kind of two-tiered uh, mm -hmm. system in which, you know, some of your students will have access to the sort of the free crappy AI, <laughs> and then the other students who can afford the 20 US dollars a month for a subscription will have the good AI, and that will, you know, give them this additional advantage. So I, I don't have a solution to that. It's just a 
really messy part of this landscape for sure, but something that I think faculty should be aware of and thoughtful about. So we talked about uh, your journey into being, uh, I think the term is instructional designer, education and developer, excuse yeah. me. Um, but we didn't talk about where your academic journey started or or midway through it, and that you have a PhD um, in medieval studies. Uh, your 2016 PhD thesis, this is, okay, this is me chat GPT and trying to give a summary of your PhD, which I skimmed with great interest, I want to point <laughs> out. Um, it, it examines the increased use of written documentation and its impact on administration in a specific period and region of medieval England. Close? Yeah. Yep. What drew you to that topic? What made the Middle Ages of interest to you? Um. Oh, I think, I mean, initially my, my attraction to the middle ages was it's really the kind of the old story of you get, you have a professor who's really kind of who just vibes really well with, <laughs> with your way of learning. And, and for me, that was Nancy partner at McGill. Um, and I took some courses with her and just found her whole approach to thinking about the middle ages, really interesting. And it was also um, one of the, first places where I saw in action a really intellectually like deeply rigorous approach to studying history and thinking about medieval sources um and I just was so excited by that so that was kind of how I initially started being interested in the middle ages um from the topic of my dissertation was really because I was very interested in a particular kind of source material um which is the the source material that is kind of generated by administrative processes um, in England at that time or in, in Europe at that time, which is the 12th and 13th centuries um, for me, which is the charter. So the, uh, a sort of an administrative document produced in service of, often in, in service of transfer of land or property or rights over property was kind of the, the main one, but deployed at multiple levels of administration, like all the way from like the, the king's court, um, right down to a very, very local level, and even just between individual actors um, who themselves may not actually have been literate, but who might have been using the services of a, a, a traveling scribe or a scribe attached to a nearby monastery or something like that. So that type of source material was very exciting and interesting to me, partly because of the way in which there's a lot of it, each individual source item is very small and short. They're often quite formulaic um, in relationship to one another and uh, like trying to trying to gather sense out of that type of like a sort of like a, it's like a giant pile of pebbles that are mostly the same. But then once you start looking at them, you're like, oh, actually all, all the pink ones might go over here. They're slightly pink. And then you mm -hmm. sort of start looking at them closely and you end up with like a, spectrum like a heaven. puzzle yeah yeah um so this is this is this question's a stretch but i want to see if i can find a way to find a thread between medieval studies and and chat gpt so science fiction author william gibson is often quoted i'm sure you've heard this quote from his 20 2003 remark the future is already here it's just not very evenly distributed so I'm wondering if, you know, as you reflect on what you were discovering when you were looking at the Middle Ages and sort of this, the slow spread of literacy 
and we are now seeing the sudden explosion of AI tools. Is there any parallels, any lessons we can take from the Middle Ages in terms of how to respond today? One of the <laughs> one of the kind of concepts that I think is was is really useful for me in thinking about literacy in the Middle Ages, particularly the kind of literacy that pertains to the kind of context and the type of documents that I was talking about, which is literacy very much in service of administrative processes um, and in and captured in documents, you know, that are very pragmatically oriented to, to you know, particular ends and not always by people who themselves are literate is this idea of pragmatic literacy. So this was kind of like a very useful idea for me with my dissertation research, but also I think is very interesting to think about in terms of the literacy that we're kind of all experiencing and the ways that we're all gaining or not gaining literacy in the this kind of new generative AI landscape. So literacy in the modern context being more about like facilitative use of the technology, the technology of generative AI. Um, and the idea of pragmatic literacy being each individual actor, or sometimes it can operate at an institutional level, but each each person masters the technology, whether it's the technology of the charter or the technology of chat GPT, to whatever degree is pragmatically necessary for them to fulfill their needs within the system in which they're operating. So I think that that leads to a very kind of like patchy uh, <laughs> sort of literacy in terms of if you're looking for like perfect fluency, you're not going to get it. But if you're looking for a system that operates like broadly societally in a way that is sufficiently literate to let the you know people within it get what they need out of it, we are there. And I think that is definitely how people are responding right right now. And is that a is that a hopeful sign then that you know if if we survive the Middle Ages then we'll survive the AI ages? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna end on a hopeful note. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Robin. This has been thank terrific. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. My guest today was Dr. Robin Sutherland Harris. To continue this conversation, she can be reached at robinsh at yorkie.ca. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at humanityinthelope.com. Thanks for listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests of this podcast are their own and do not reflect those of their employer or any other affiliation. Humanity is not automatic.